Right, good morning, La Habra. Uh, a little bit more setup than usual today, I guess. Um, for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Evan Thibodeau, and I have the joy, thank you, Marilyn, <laughs> uh, and I have the joy of being the youth director for the La Habra campus. Thanks, Joe. So today I was told that I couldn't use one of the lapel mics. They said they didn't bring it. I think it's actually because they thought it would get lost in the beard. Um, I guess I'll just have to make do, but I, I won't be able to be as expressive due to having to hold this close to my mouth so you can hear me. Um, I'd just love to echo what Joe kind of mentioned this morning, too. With And I, I love this campus. I am just so grateful for this church and for each and every one of you. It's just a pleasure to be a part of this body. (laughs) This is going to take a long time (laughs) if there's clapping every time. (laughs) Um, So all of us here at La Habra, I think, we're here specifically in this location because we're on mission not our own mission. We're, we're rather here because we believe that we have been called by God to be on his mission uh, in La Habra and around the world. And the truth is, it's not necessarily an easy mission all the time, but we believe that it's worth it. And the passage that we're looking at today deals with that mission specifically. As we look at it, I'm hoping to remind us of three things. Hoping to remind us of the nature of the mission that God has called us to, the empowerment for that mission, and also what that mission demands of us. And so in order for us to get to these three points, we first need to understand the narrative of this passage. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in the first 17 verses. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free. We actually have ours spaced out throughout the pews. Um, And in our Bibles, you'll be on page 866. I'd also say that if you just happen to not have a copy of God's Word and would like one, please feel free to take that copy with you. Uh, That would be our gift to you. So as we look at the passage today, I want us to kind of think big picture at first. And The passage can be divided up into three separate portions. It begins with Jesus sending out the twelve on their first evangelistic mission. Then there's kind of this odd part in the middle where it deals with Herod's response to Jesus and the disciples' ministry, followed by what is intended, I think, to be Jesus' debrief of the disciples' first evangelistic mission, but due to the crowds, it actually ends up being the story that we're all familiar with, the feeding of the 5,000. And so we're going to work our way through this, this passage, but in order to properly understand what's going on here, I think it's helpful to have a little bit of greater context in terms of where we are in the book of Luke and where we are in terms of Jesus' ministry. And so when we look at Jesus' ministry in Luke, we can actually kind of divide it up into some distinct portions. The first portion of Jesus' ministry takes place all in one location. It's, you can refer to it as the Galilean ministry. It's all around the area of Galilee. After that, there's a key moment 
where you see Jesus' focus begins to change. And, and Luke talks about this in terms of he turns his face toward Jerusalem. And there's a period now, though it takes quite a while, of him heading towards Jerusalem. And this is important because as he begins to turn his focus towards Jerusalem, ultimately it's turning his focus towards the cross and towards his mission there. And one kind of thing that's cool to notice, if you haven't ever seen this before, is that no one forced Jesus to go to the cross. Rather, he chose to go there. And you see that even just in chapter 9. It's at the end of chapter 9 where it first tells us that he's heading towards Jerusalem. That's him actually beginning that process of going towards the cross, willingly taking that on. And that's a distinct kind of transition in his ministry as he begins that direction. And then finally, there's kind of a third part of the ministry that you see, the ministry actually that takes place in Jerusalem. But today, where we find ourselves in the passage, and where we've actually been thus far in the book of Luke, has all been Galilee. All of the ministry thus far has taken place in that area. And right now, we're at the end of that ministry. So we're kind of at the crux, kind of at that transition point between the Galilean ministry and when he begins to head off to Jerusalem, turn his face toward Jerusalem. So it's actually at the end of chapter 9 that we're in where he begins that journey. So just remember kind of that context as we look at the passage. It's helpful to note that that means that things are kind of changing. This is when Jesus is probably realizing that his time is, although he still has a fair amount of time left, it's coming to a close. Ideals, focus, different things like that are changing. So as we begin to look at this passage, as we begin in verse 1, I want you to pay attention to the instructions that Jesus gives the disciples as he sends them out. Some of the instructions may seem a little odd, but we'll impact those as we go. So if you would, go along with and read with me, but before we do, just pray with me one more time. Father, thank you so much for your word and the fact that you show us so much of who you are and what you have for us in it. God, I pray now that as we look at your word, our hearts would be open to hear what you have for us. Speak through me. May this be your words, not my own. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Starting at verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whether they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So this is the first section of the three that I mentioned. And you probably notice there's a couple things about the instructions Jesus gives that seems a little odd. I'm going to start by just kind of quickly explaining some of that, but then I want us to focus on the first part where I think is kind of the meat of the passage and some of the really important stuff I want us to focus on. So one thing he says is he tells them, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. This seems kind of odd, but in general, it's more than likely an encouragement for them to avoid being rude to those who are showing hospitality to them, as well as there was a common thing that would occur with itinerant preachers in the day 
where they would take advantage of hospitality and constantly move from one house that was kind of okay, then there's hospitality at a house that's even nicer, so they're going to move over to that one, and so to avoid simply changing locations for the sake of comfort. So Jesus wants them to avoid that, anything that's going to get in the way of the gospel message of what he wants them to proclaim. Then he tells them that wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This part also seems a little odd, also cultural, but in essence, the purpose here is he's saying that when they reject you, when they reject the message, they're rejecting me. And shaking off the dust from your feet is in essence demonstrating like a condemnation on them for the rejection of God. From there then, I want us to focus on what the beginning of the passage, which I think is where some of the most important stuff is. So jump back and look again at verses 1 through 3. I want you to notice in this that first what Jesus does is he gives them power and authority. Then with that empowerment, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And finally, as they do that, they're supposed to take nothing with them in the process. I love the order that Jesus goes about for this. Jesus begins, before sending them out, to empower them for the mission that he sends them on. As you think about this, you should note that this is the first real ministry that Jesus has the disciples partake in. Up until this point in the book of Luke, the only instances that Luke records of the disciples taking part in ministry is A, being, having Peter told that he is going to uh, catch men, and there's one instance where the disciples answer a question from religious authorities. Other than that, there's literally no instance that Luke records of them partaking in the ministry. Now, that's not to say that they weren't right there the entire time. They didn't sieges. Maybe they did other things. They aren't recorded. But it's interesting to note that this is the first time that it's explicit that they are going to be doing the ministry themselves. And when that happens, Jesus doesn't just send them out unprepared, but rather he sends them out empowered in the same way that we see throughout Luke, Jesus being empowered himself. He has power and authority to do the ministry that he tells them to do. I'm sure that most of you have experienced the feeling of being in over your head at times, having no idea where to begin. Maybe you're assigned a task to complete but you're not giving any power or authority to carry it out. It's an unbelievably painful experience. That's not what happens here. Rather, Jesus is giving them a mission, but he also fully empowers them for it. They've seen what it looks like to carry out this mission, and they're given the power and authority to do it. So what is the nature of the mission that Jesus gives them? The way that Jesus describes this mission is twofold. He says the mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Notice how this is a focus both both on spiritual and on physical needs. I think it's helpful to realize that so often with each of us, we have a tendency to focus on one or the other in neglect of both. And if you think about it, there's a huge danger here. Some of us, if we tend to only focus on the spiritual, if we're only going to proclaim the gospel but ignore 
the nature of, phys- of people's physical needs where they're actually at right now, we ignore the fact that a huge part of the gospel is the compassion and care for the individual. On the other hand, if all we do is care for people's physical needs, if we feed the hungry and help those who are sick, we ignore the greatest possible need that people have, which is spiritual in nature and lasts for eternity. It's so important to realize that the mission that Jesus gives to disciples is one that's holistic. It meets people both on their greatest needs spiritual, but also where they're at right now in terms of physical needs and what really is going to break down the walls and barriers that would allow the gospel to seep in deep. So what is the message they are proclaiming? Proclaim the kingdom of God. This is probably something that might sound a little odd to some of you. Don't we usually talk about preaching the gospel? It's actually kind of interesting to note when you look at how this passage starts and how it ends, verse 1 and verse 6. In verse 1, if you look at that, it says, sorry, let me find this really quick. Verse 1 He tells them to proclaim the kingdom and heal. Verse 6, he says what they have done, and he says that they are to, they have been healing and preaching the gospel. When we look at this, we can see that Luke is equivocating this idea of proclaiming the kingdom with preaching the gospel. But even more than that, this idea of proclaiming the kingdom has even bigger ideas going on to it, uh, along with it. And it's really important to Luke's idea of what Jesus is doing. In fact, in the book of Luke, according to the ESV translation, this idea of the kingdom of God shows up 32 times. It's emphasized throughout. In fact, any time we see Jesus, uh, Luke mention what Jesus is teaching and preaching, it's that he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the heart of Jesus' message in Luke, is to proclaim the kingdom. And I think that one thing that kind of helps us understand that is we look at the first instance of Jesus preaching, going all the way back to verse 4. Jesus opens up the book of Isaiah and reads from it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' preaching is proclaiming the kingdom of God, and in this, he's proclaiming the kingdom. He's proclaiming a kingdom in which there is good news for the poor, in which there is liberty to captives, in which those who are oppressed are set free. It's the year of the Lord's favor. This is something that has Old Testament hope written into it as well. In the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this time when God would eventually reign, when God would eventually have his kingdom made manifest. This was realizing that things weren't as they should be, that sin was dominant, that there's all these problems in the world and that things need to be made right, and the coming of the kingdom of God is the beginning of those things being made right. Jesus indicates throughout Luke by his preaching that his ministry is bringing about the inauguration of the kingdom. It's through his preaching that the kingdom begins to enter in to our world. In fact, every time you see one of the miracles that Jesus performs, this is evidence of the kingdom breaking in. It points to the fact that although there are other rulers and powers in this world, Jesus is the one that has supreme authority. He is the one that has authority over nature. He is the one who has authority over sickness 
He is the one who is ultimately breaking in, demonstrating that he is the one that reigns, that he is the one is, who is king. Now, whether the kingdom of God is a new idea to you or an old idea, this is something that should excite you. This is something that should awaken passion, realizing that the kingdom is breaking in at Jesus' teaching. But also, Jesus points out that it's not coming entirely all at once. You know, Jesus mentions that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And I don't know about you, but I have never planted a mustard seed, but I have gotten into planting over the past year. And one thing that I've planted quite a bit is a zucchini seed. And at least in California, if you plant a zucchini seed, it grows like crazy, even though it starts only about that big. And it's this tiny little seed, but it grows into this huge plant. I mean, my zucchinis, I've had to trim them back a lot, but they're growing to be about that tall and about six feet in diameter, which honestly amazes me since I grew up in Alaska and couldn't grow anything. But what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven right now is breaking in in a small way. It starts out tiny, but it is going to be huge what happens. It's not going to be fully realized, though, until Jesus comes back again. But it's here. It's just not fully realized yet. And so as you notice then, if proclaiming the kingdom of God is, is equal to preaching the gospel, then when we preach the gospel, what we're doing is we're proclaiming that God's kingdom is here and we are offering people a way to be a part of it. The third thing we see in the way that Jesus shares this mission for the disciples is, is what the mission requires. And one thing that seems kind of odd as we read this passage is how he says, take nothing for your journey. It's verse 3. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. This could kind of seem weird. You guys wonder, wait, is that what I'm supposed to do? And I, I want to say that, no, I don't think that this is something that is required of everyone who wants to take part in the mission of God. In fact, in other places in Luke, Jesus doesn't always give these instructions. In chapter 22, he talks about sending the disciples out again, and he says to them that when I sent you out before with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So this idea of taking nothing with them is not something that is always assumed as a necessity for those of us who are participating in God's mission, but rather Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something really important here. And I think actually chapter 22, where he explains another time how to send them out, helps us to understand that. He asked the question, did you lack anything when I sent you out taking nothing? Their answer, no. What Jesus is trying to do in this instance in saying out the disciples is he's trying to train them to trust him. He's trying to show them that they can trust him for everything in the mission. He says, take nothing because I will provide everything. It's not something that all of us have to do is take nothing, but what we do have to realize is that a part of the mission of God requires that we radically trust God to provide for his mission. As we move on from there, we, we kind of have gotten over this first part where this is kind of the 
first missionary journey, the first kind of mission that Jesus sends his disciples out on, it's kind of like unleashed for the disciples, if you're familiar with our youth camp. It's this kind of training ground for them. We now go on to this next part. And this portion of the passage where we deal with Herod could kind of seem out of place, and that's okay. But I want us to to notice a couple things as we read it, starting at verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, Herod is the one who is an official authority over this general region. And Herod now has heard about what Jesus and his disciples have been up to in Galilee. And I think that this response is probably prompted more so by the fact that Jesus has now sent his disciples out to do the ministry as well. It's likely that one guy proclaiming the kingdom wouldn't have been that much of a worry, but once there's 12 other guys participating in that, all of a sudden, it takes a little bit more notice. The other thing we should notice is that every time Herod is brought up in Luke's gospel, it's not good. It tends to be that he's brought up when there is kind of an affront to the ministry. And in this case, Herod's response indicates kind of the beginning of an official hostility from the authorities towards the ministry. Notice that it's in this moment that we learn that Herod beheaded John the Baptist, who was preaching a similar message. John, in fact, even people are thinking that maybe this is John, that Jesus is John. John and Jesus are clearly being uh, identified similarly in this. And in thus, it's easy to see that there could be a worry that Jesus and his disciples would end up with the same sort of situation as John. Herod's response indicates a rejection of the message. I think that's kind of the purpose of the story being brought in here is to point out that there is a hostility coming here. It might actually indicate why the ministry begins to move away from the region of Galilee. As we go on, we get on to the next part of the passage, which I think is intended to be the debrief, but you'll see that it doesn't end up happening that way. Jesus doesn't get this time to debrief the first ministry of the apostles. And so starting at verse 10, he says, On their return... The apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So there's an intent here probably to move aside for a time. Jesus always does this in ministry. He spends a lot of time in ministry and he takes time to go aside to pray and to spend time with the Father, and I think in this time, probably to spend time debriefing with the apostles too after their first missionary journey. But in this case, the crowds end up realizing where they're going, and they come along, and Jesus in compassion ends up spending time with the crowds. I think one thing that's interesting to see is that here explicitly we we see what Jesus teaches the crowds. Luke says that he spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of feeling. Do you guys notice that's identical to what he told the disciples to do? The ministry of the disciples is, according to Luke, explained in the same way that the ministry of Jesus was. 
As we read this next section, remember how Jesus had intentionally designed this first ministry of the disciples to grow their trust in God's provision. At verse 12, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. At this point, it's, it's getting late, and there were 5,000 people present who by this time would be hungry and in need of food. The disciples, probably thinking about logistics, asked Jesus if maybe they should bring the night to a close in order to send them away to get food. Jesus responds to them with an opportunity for them to trust God. How do they respond in this instance? They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is an instance where we see the disciples don't learn the lesson the first time. They've just been taught that God can provide for every need where They didn't bring anything with them, yet they lack nothing on the journey that that Jesus has sent them on. Now they have an opportunity once again to trust God to provide for the ministry, and they don't. They fail horribly. How are we supposed to do this? We don't have any food. But in spite of their failure to trust God in this, their failure to trust that God will provide what is needed for the ministry, Jesus still uses them. Notice, he tells them, after blessing the food, he tells them, separate the crowd out into fifties, have them sit down. He tells them to then take the, the food and distribute it to them. Even though they've just failed to trust him, he continues to use them. I think that's amazing. You can't flunk out of God's ministry. <laughs> he still wants to use you. I think what's also interesting is, notice how... There's 12 baskets full of broken pieces. This was a miracle. God multiplied this food immensely. He could have multiplied it so that there was nothing left over. But he multiplied it so that there were 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Just enough baskets so that each one of the disciples would have one basket full of food to collect. I don't think that's a coincidence. This seems to indicate that this miracle was meant to teach the disciples once again, to instruct them and to point out even more that they can trust God fully with the ministry that he has given them. Let's think about this once more holistically. The disciples are clearly empowered for the mission. They're given power and authority to do it. They're called to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal, and they're asked to radically trust God in order to carry that mission out. This mission doesn't end with the apostles. Later in Luke, Jesus doesn't stop with just sending out the twelve. In verse 10, 
Jesus appoints 72 and sends them out ahead of him to do the same sort of thing. He tells them to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke, in the other book that he wrote, in the book of Acts, he records kind of the commission that Jesus gives to the starting members of the church in Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This now is a commission that he ends up giving to the church where the same idea, power, goes along with then being able to fulfill the ministry that God has given. Matthew has another version of this account where he talks about all authority being given to Jesus. And so, therefore, because of the authority that's given to Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The authority and power of God empowers the church to fulfill the ministry of God. Notice, too, that as this continues on, the broadening, the scope of the ministry ends up getting broadened. It now includes all peoples. Remember, guys, God's mission for us doesn't end in La Habra. God's mission is for all peoples to know him. Jesus, the disciples, and the 72 all proclaimed the kingdom of God. So should we. That's the mission that God has sent us on. Our mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, to care both for people's spiritual and people's physical needs. And we too are empowered for this mission. We receive power from the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and we go out with Jesus' authority. Just like the disciples, in order to follow the mission of God, we must radically trust God. We must trust him to provide for our needs and the needs of his mission. And also, just like the disciples, at times we will fail to trust him as we should. But he will continue to use us to fulfill his mission. And even in our failure to trust him, he will show himself worthy of all of our trust. Now this is the mission of those who are in God's kingdom. But more than likely, there are those of us here today that are not a part of God's kingdom. And for those of you who have not chosen to become a part of God's kingdom, you haven't decided yet to submit to his rule and reign in your life, I want you to hear this. The kingdom of God is near to you. And I want you to think about this. The gift of the 5,000... The gift that God offers you to be a part of his kingdom is is very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. Notice in that instance, they didn't have to clean themselves up in order to receive the food. So often in that culture, cleanliness was so important, being ceremonial clean, especially around meals, and yet Jesus makes no mention of that. And also, there was nothing asked in order to receive it. It was a free gift. It's the same idea with the grace that God offers to you. You don't have to make yourself right. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to come to Jesus. And you don't have to give him anything in return. He asks for nothing in order for you to receive his grace and become part of his kingdom. 
It's a free gift. If you want to know more about this, please don't leave today without talking to someone. We'd love to talk to you about it. Barbara, this is the mission that God has called us to. This is the mission that we have been called to. We've been empowered to do it. Trust God and go. Proclaim his kingdom. Would you guys pray with me? Father, so grateful for your word and how it shares with us what you're doing in the world, how you have broken in, how your kingdom has broken in, and how you ultimately will reign. Father, I ask that you would help us to continue to faithfully step out in your mission, to not allow failure and setbacks to keep us from continually stepping out, caring for people's spiritual and physical needs, and proclaiming your kingdom. We love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.